everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Women on War podcast. I'm your host, Jillian Drapple. And I am your host, Alyssa Atkins. And we'll just say that, well, we're not your average museum gals. And this week, we're going to be discussing not just a various topic on warfare, but one particular individual. And we are now starting our, I guess, really Women on War series. Yeah. Um, well, they're the name of our podcast. Yeah. Um, so we'll be, you know, as normal, drinking and slinging some jokes, but we're really going to be diving deep specifically with this person. Um, but before that, Jillian, what are we drinking this week? Well, this week, this story is near and dear to my heart because I actually portray this person in Civil War reenacting. And I feel like there's no better drink than Basil Hayden Tenure, which we are drinking we're both drinking basil hayden tenure so you know just got to get fancy with it and dive right into the story because it's a whirlwind it is yeah it's i feel like this is a really good this particular individual who um this individual i should say is none other than annie etheridge Mm -hmm. and this is honestly truly one of like the most important i feel like females in warfare um particularly during the civil war period so things are going to be a little bit different this week. Um, I'm actually going to be kind of interviewing Jillian because, as she mentioned, this is who she portrays for Civil War reenacting. And I feel like, why not go to a wealth of knowledge and source for this particular week, for this episode? So, oh well, yeah. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> well, oh, okay. well, I feel like we we just kind of got to bring in a little bit of modern reenacting with this and kind of dive into it and tie it all in together in a nice package. Oh, no, I definitely agree. I think, you know, one of the things that we set out to do, obviously, like we have our each, like, I guess, four to five weeks, we have like our different sets. And so when like Jillian, you and I were planning, we're like, okay, first, like few episodes, we're doing Obscure Wars, because why not? Like, they're not really talked about a whole lot. You know, they definitely... And any type of like reenacting setting, obviously, no one's going to go reenact the Oaken Bucket, which I think would actually be pretty funny if somebody did. Oh my God, let's Uh, do it. Or or the Great Emu War of, you know, 1932. (laughs) However, I think it's super important that this next part we stick with, well, our podcast name, Women on War, and really talk about these unsung heroes, especially before really I, before the world wars essentially right because yeah. females weren't really prevalent in you know war or anything like that at least from what yeah. we know which will be a fun topic that we're going to be discussing um yeah. a little bit later but to get us started though Jillian tell us a little bit you know if you could give the back of a book like biography you know that little snippet oh man and, like, the cliff notes version no, it's like a small little like thing about if you had to write a book yeah. about Annie Etheridge and like that small little snippet and then we can dive further. But tell us a little bit about Annie specifically. Absolutely. Well, I mean, if I think if I was writing the back of a book, I would rough edit, just be like, you think that women didn't serve in the war. You are mistaken 100 percent because there are a lot of women that served in the war. Unfortunately, it's a lot of unknown cases because from my research that I've done, and there's this great book that I was mentioning to you earlier, I'll pass for your comrade, um, Women Soldiers in the Civil War by Anita Sylvie. 
amazing book, one of the most like well-written and comprehensive books on why a woman would join up, where she would have joined up, who she might have known, how she got through an entire war with no one knowing that she's a woman. But there's a lot of factors in it that we think we don't think of because we're thinking with a 2020 mindset or 2021 mindset. So we have to put ourselves back into the timeline and the time of the 1860s, even earlier, the 1850s, when, you know, women just wore dresses, pants were taboo. Looking at a woman today, we see like, oh, if she's expecting a baby, like she clearly, like you can tell what her figure looks like. Back in the 1860s, they had really no idea. So if a woman was dressed as like a man and she was expecting a child, you're just like, oh, maybe, you know, Bill's just putting on an extra few rations or something. He's eating his hardtack too fast. Yeah. You know, cliff, cliff note versions from there, it's like, you know, not all women dressed as men. And so I would just kind of like leave it as, you know, dot, dot, dot. And then Ooh. start the book. So throwing some ellipses in there. Ellipses. Nice little finger <laughs> there. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> I I do think it's super interesting. And now that I was thinking about this in my oh so wonderful library, how many books I have. Um I actually thinking about it now, I have a book, um, I think from eighteen seventy, and it is about women in the Civil War. And that was in eighteen seventy, but I haven't read it in a really long time. So, yeah, read it. Um, and there, but, and that's the thing, you know, with with Annie, there is, you know, you hear stories about Clara Barton, Sarah era, Sarah Emma Edmonds, um, probably you know Florence Nightingale, probably like some of the the three major like women, and we obviously Sarah dressed as a man. She you know went by Franklin Thompson, but a lot of that story is like pushed off by male reenactors, male historians. And this is not me like ragging on like male historians because some of them are actually very supportive of, you know, what, you know, I'm doing in reenacting, you know, bringing a, a different story to life because there were women that served both as a man and, you know, dressed as a man and dressed as a woman. But a lot of male historians, especially with books, movies, in the 18 or in the 1980s, they literally wrote women out of the story because they did not want to accept that women actually fought in the military and that they could be just as patriotic and have a sense of call to duty as a man did. Oh, absolutely. And I feel like, I mean, when you touch base on the women that you hear other than Sarah Edmonds, um, you know, Florence Nightingale, Clara Barton, they were nurses. And so that's why they had that typical female role, not to get all, you know, feminist, you know, feministic. I mean, actually, no, let's, why not? This is a women led podcast on war. So we can be, you know, have some feminism in here. Um, I feel like that is one of those big things. And that's probably why we hear so much about those particular women. And we don't necessarily hear about the unsung heroes. Um, like Sarah Edmonds, unless you really dive into that research or even Annie. And um, what I think is so fascinating though too, and I'm always, I get so annoyed with state history or state historians because a lot of the times things do get left out, like you said, and at least from where we grew up, um, Annie has a huge part to play, um, you know, because when we think about it, wasn't it Lincoln who said, um, if it wasn't for those boys from Michigan and stuff like that. And I would include yeah. Annie in that. And so the fact that, you know, 
we as Michiganders, when we learn our state history and we learn about the Civil War, we are standing so tall and proud. Yeah. But we neglect um, such key female figures like Annie Etheridge and Sarah Edmonds. Can you give us a little bit of, and I guess really Annie's backstory, I guess in a way, like what made her decide to join and enlist and be with all of these males and, you know, go after those things that she felt called to do necessarily. I, I still kick myself on a daily basis because I'm like, why hasn't this been turned into a movie yet? Why? How? There's so much theory. There are so many like, well, maybe she did this or maybe she did that. And, you know, I want to preface this with I've been doing my own research on Annie and I've actually written to a family member that has inherited Annie's belongings. And so maybe there's a journal. As of right now, we don't know. So we're going off of articles written by the men of the 2nd, the 3rd, and the 5th Michigan. And each regiment, the 2nd, 3rd, 5th Michigan, loved Annie. I mean, everyone who came into contact with Annie said that they loved her. She was known as Gentle Annie or Michigan Annie. Just to give a little bit of background, her name was actually Lorinda Anna Blair. And then you want to tack all of her other names on it, and it's actually Lorinda Anna Blair Kellogg Etheridge Hooks. She was married three times. Gee. Homegirl was married three times. Like, and in the 1860s, like, divorce was, like, a weird taboo. I was going to say, it wasn't very common. So Yeah, so she was born in 1839. A lot of the times when you look up Annie, she's it's going to say she was born in 1844, but that's just not true. Because if you look at census records um, in the 1850s, she was actually in Wisconsin. Her father was a blacksmith. They moved the family out to Wisconsin. And her and her brothers and sisters were out there. But apparently her dad lost the family fortune and he moved back to Detroit. Mm -hmm. um, and Annie stayed behind because in the 1850s, in 1856, she actually married David Kellogg. David Kellogg, from what I can tell, never enlisted in the military like his brothers and even his 62-year-old father. The next thing that we see of David in census records is that he's in Iowa in 1866 with his only mm -hmm. possession being a horse. In order to, to get into the military or to become like a nurse in the Civil War time period, you had to have some sort of quote-unquote nursing background. At, mm -hmm. in, in the early 1860s, really 1860 itself, Annie was actually back in Detroit nursing her father. And that's how she got a nursing background. She joined up with the 2nd Michigan at Fort Wayne in 1861. And from there, she traveled um, to Washington, D.C., where the 2nd and the third had been stationed with and charged with protecting Washington, D.C. There were battles along the way. Like, you know, let me see here. There's Her first battle was Blackburn's Ford. There was Second Bull Run, um, Antietam, Fredericksburg, Chancellorville, like just to name a couple of them. She earned a title of something called a Vivandier, which is a daughter of the regiment. And so they, yeah. were, they were essentially, to break it down, they were laundresses, cooks, nurses. They cheered the men on. But they always stayed behind the lines. Well, Annie, that wasn't good enough for her. So she was always in front of the lines. There were a couple times she gave away the position of the men um, because she was like, come on, boys, beat the Rebs. Like she was very prevalent in the men. She wrote letters for them. She got to know them. They, they thought of her as a sister. She thought of them as brothers. And she literally tended to men on the battlefield. There are stories of men getting shot 
and and brutally killed literally while she's tending to them. I don't know how she got only one injury during the entire war. That's I'm just like I'm processing everything. <laughs> and we haven't even like and that's just like scratching the surface. So to get back to like her little love stories going on. Annie in 1862 marries James Etheridge in Washington, D.C. So she gets the name Annie Etheridge. She went by Annie because Lorinda, you know, I don't know. So she she then becomes Annie Etheridge. Well, later, after the war, she actually asked for a divorce from James Etheridge. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to why she did this. My theory is that David Kellogg, her first husband, either deserted her which could have been the case, or she got abused and used her father as an excuse to go back to Detroit, which very well might have been the case because, get this, she then tells the judge, who is who is deciding on her divorce, that she thought that her husband was dead and received a letter, and it said that he's very much alive. So that's why she's asking for a divorce. And you're like, okay, that kind of doesn't match up the theory as to why she might have been abused. She then asks her husband, her ex-husband now, James, if she can keep her last name of Etheridge. So I'm thinking that she doesn't want to be found in yeah. in all of this. Which totally makes sense. I mean, women just in general during that time period did not have autonomy in a lot of ways. Like if they yeah. were abused in any type of situation, they would have to you know, stay. So that definitely makes sense as to why it wouldn't match up. But I do have a question, Mm -hmm. uh, kind of circling back to her, I guess more along the lines of being like daughter of the regiment, Mm -hmm. um, later transferring. So was she essentially, um, basically with the troops that were in the army of the Potomac? Yeah. Is that located at was army of the, okay. Yeah. So like, everybody kind of like a visual so that way they're like i know these battles but where we're at and our wonderful map of this war is like yeah, all this and located at they um, i mean they were on the move a lot and interestingly enough she was with the second michigan originally when they okay. got sent to tennessee annie wanted to stay with the army of the potomac so she actually transferred over to the third and then the fifth and later the third and the fifth combined Okay. And so she wanted to stay with the Army of the Potomac. Funny enough, when Grant took over and was mm-hmm. like, uh, why are women in the military? Get them all out. She was sent to a hospital transport ship and stayed there for a couple months and then decided, nah, I'm out. I'm going back to my boys and forced her way back in. She was so well known amongst the men that even the officers were like, yeah, what she said. Do what she says. And this is a volunteer. Like, she's not even holding a military rank. She is a volunteer. Which is, it's so mind-boggling. I mean, it's mind-boggling now to think that she wasn't even able to hold a rank because with all of her acts of, like, you know, heroism, essentially, removing injured soldiers off the battlefield and truly living up to the infantry's motto of follow me, right? You know, she's most females who are nurses or daughter of the regiments would have stayed back and just did, as I'm saying this very begrudgingly in case anybody can't tell by the tone of my voice, but still, even if they were 
volunteers in the military, they were still doing women's duties. Like yeah. the Victorian calendar, work week calendar was still being fulfilled in and, <laughs> and a battle. And, and what's interesting is they even told her like, Annie, get back. We can't lose you. And she just straight up went, nah, and went to the front. Like, she's like, that's my men out there. I'm not leaving them. Right. That takes, like, that takes some. Cojones? <laughs> like, basically, I was trying to find, like, a better way to say it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, really, that does. And going back into that whole mindset of, you know, the infantry saying, they're is follow me. I'm the infantry. You know, we're the first ones in. She truly, as a woman, embodied that. Um, especially during a time where women just didn't have that agency or autonomy. And they were still, even if they were volunteers, like we said, they're still stuck together. I mean, she was a nurse first and foremost. She wasn't specifically in a field hospital or anything like that. Um, But they wanted her to stay back because they couldn't lose her. Now I'm wondering like, what do you think the reason is why they said they couldn't lose her? Do you, this is maybe me being a feminist at this moment and just saying like, is it because a lot of stuff would have been taken care of or because she truly was kind of like the person who rallied them up to get them to go back out and fight those tough battles like in Manassas and everything like that. Yeah. I, I for sure think it's the latter. Um, a point I want to add to this is when she joined in 61, she was one of 20 women, Mm -hmm. 19 of the, those women left within the first couple of months because they just couldn't handle, you know, military life. Annie, I thoroughly think that Annie literally had nothing to lose at that point. She's like, I have no husband. I have, you know, before she married James, she's like, I have no husband. I have no property. I really have no rights. I'm out here on my own. I mean, if you look at a woman's rights in the 1860, it was non-existent. You couldn't vote. You couldn't hold property unless you inherited it. There are like some like property laws, but it differs state to state. So she's literally like, I have nothing. There might have been like stipulation that she got paid, you know, a soldier's wage, which was about $13 a month. And Annie, I've been finding more and more newspaper articles saying that she did in fact get paid, but she definitely rallied the men every single time. And I just want to bring up a story from Chancellorville where she, you know, the men were going out into battle. She ran in front of the line. Come on, men, beat the rebs, all this stuff. She then got yelled at to get back. So she begrudgingly goes to a tree. And this officer comes by on his horse and wedges himself in between her, her horse, and the tree because he doesn't want to get killed. And karma comes into play. A bullet actually kills him. Like it comes through and it kills him. And then another bullet actually comes in and grazes her hand and shoots the horse. That's the only, like it clips the horse. And it's the, that's the only like injury she has during the war. Well, the horse takes off at like a dead run and she runs into another unit. They finally like catch the horse. She she jumps down and is like, where is your commander? And he's like, I don't, I don't know who you are. She's like, take me to your leader. Like <laughs> right now. And you know, an officer comes out because he's hearing this commotion and they're like, Annie, what are you doing here? You should be over there. And she's like, uh, you're now in charge. I need all of you to come with me. And they go, they follow her. And so she's just well known amongst the officers that I think they couldn't lose her because one, she was the only battlefield medic that they really had. Everybody else was like stationary field hospitals. 
-hmm. And she was actively working in the field. And there's, you know, at Second Bull Run, she was working on a soldier and he literally got, you know, a cannonball hit. And I don't know how the heck she survived, but she's dragging bodies to a set of rocks and General Kearney comes by who the Kearney Cross is named after. And he's like, Annie, I like what you're doing. You know, I'm going to promote you to a sergeant. A woman is going to hold a rank. And so he's like, I'm going to do it. And he never got the chance because he got killed. And so Annie never got her sergeant's pay. But a lot of the times the men actually kind of treated her as a sergeant. Yeah. So it's, I I honestly don't think that they could have lost her because she really looked after all of them. I mean, especially when you're saying that with the story specifically about how they literally all of them just followed her and she's like, you have to come with me and all of that. I think that really speaks to her testament as a leader and a character. And it would have been phenomenal and amazing to see her get that specific rank and have, or just hold that rank in general um, as a female during the civil war. Now, when I was kind of reading about Annie, um, I know Battle of Chancellorsville is where she was wounded in the hand, but wasn't she almost captured during the second battle of Manassas? Oh God. I kind of, in my head all the time, I think of it like a Scooby-Doo episode because a lot of the times you kind of knew where the other skirmish line was, kind of. And Annie wasn't, she wouldn't travel by herself. She would actually travel with the steward. And we had a hospital chest, and I, I do my best to recreate mine, but, you know, it's a work in progress. The hospital steward and her got lost from each other. And they were kind of, like, running around in between the skirmish lines trying to find each other, and she almost ran into the opposite line. But then at that point, you know, you think, okay, she's wearing a riding habit that was either blue, green, or brown. Reports, you know, newspapers say different things. Mm-hmm. Um she is not in military clothing. She doesn't have any military insignia on her at all. She could easily probably have made up a lie. Um, she probably could have said, oh, I'm, please help me. Like they're trying to get me, blah, blah, blah. She could have easily lied her way through. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I don't think she might've. I think from what stories say about her, she has a good head on her shoulders and she probably would have avoided that, but <gasps> stewards. <laughs> But I think it like a Scooby-Doo scene where they're all like running back and forth and like all this stuff. And it's just kind of insane. You're just like, what the actual hell is going <laughs> on here? It's. Oh, my God. It's it's mind boggling that, you know, she could have, like you said, she could have lied about it. But instead, she chose the more difficult routes and kind of keeping her honor as someone of not necessarily she wasn't ranked, as we've already stated, but still holding some type of rank within that area. Um, I do want to say, like, there's one quote that I actually found um, about her by Color Sergeant Daniel Crowdy of the 3rd Michigan Infantry. I I don't. Do you know? You already know. You're like, yes, I know which one you're going to say. Um, Because this is how truly, like, Annie is, you know, if you haven't already heard, especially from, like, just the passion discussion that Jillian has been, you know, holding – um, Annie Etheridge truly belonged on the battlefield. You know, like you said, Jillian, she, where else does she have? She was 21 at the time the war broke out mm-hmm. and, um, not having so much agency, but 
Anyway, Color Sergeant Daniel Crotty had said, the world never produced, but very few such women, for she is along with us through storm and sunshine. In the heat of the battle, caring for the wounded, and in the camp looking after the poor sick soldier, and have a smile and a cheering word for everyone who comes in her way. Every soldier is alike to her. She is with us to administer to all our little wants, which are not few. To praise her would not be enough, but to suffice to say that as long as one of the old thirds shall live, she will always be held in the greatest esteem and remembered with kindly feelings for her goodness and virtues. Now, most women, if they did fight in the Civil War, um, they they had to hide their identity as a woman. Annie did not have to, to have that recognition. Well, the recognition, recognition in which she had. So... This is why, you know, Jillian, and you already said, you're like, why isn't there a movie about Annie Etheridge? Like, why isn't there? Yeah. Like, what do you think? Why isn't there a movie or something history? Like, why isn't she so prevalent in her history books is really, I guess, the question that I want to ask. Because if she was a nurse, you know, her being a union nurse, you also have union nurses like Florence Nightingale and Clara Barton who are scattered all throughout our textbooks. But Annie Etheridge, especially after what Color Sergeant Daniel Crotty said, it is almost mind-boggling that it's, she is not in it. Like, she's yeah. not really in any prevalent history books. So yeah. why? Why is that? From Annie's perspective, I really don't think she wanted the praise. When she was living in Washington, D.C. after the war, she worked at the Navy Yard She was very humble. She didn't really have any praise. She didn't even write her own military pension for herself. Four years she served in a war, got no recognition, did it as a volunteer, and not even like, hey, Congress, I did this. It was the men of of the Michigan units that did it. And unfortunately, I think as to why it's not in like mainstream is because she didn't fit the typical woman's role at that time where it's like, oh, Clara Barton stayed in a hospital. Florence Nightingale, you know, stayed in a hospital. They wore dresses. They wore, you know, they did, they fit in this fear of domesticity that is prevalent with women back then. You stayed at home, you raised children, or you took care of your family members when they were sick. You let the men go off and fight. You let the men be patriotic. You let that, and it's not saying that like women weren't patriotic. I mean, clearly some of them were just as patriotic as the men, if not more. And that's gone back years and years and years. But for women to actually be on the front lines, like with bullets, like whizzing by, like, you know, ripping her petticoats, like that's not normal. And so I think like a lot of male historians, especially in the 1980s, unfortunately, have written those stories out because they're like, nah, I I don't think she did that. Or where's your proof? And I'm like, hello, look at pension records by the men of the second, third, fifth Michigan. They were the ones who wrote her pension. Yeah. Like application. Which is, I'm, I'm slightly flabbergasted at the fact that even, I mean, I guess I shouldn't say flabbergasted. I think it is impeccably wonderful and amazing that these men did that to write her pension, to give her that recognition. At the same time, she still should have some form of recognition now it doesn't it didn't have to be immediately after you know the civil war but now um you know because we have so many incredible and wonderful women who have served through multiple wars um 
Yeah. And having that recognition, I feel like would allow women to have their place specifically in the military. And now I'm not, not to jump down a rabbit hole specifically. Um, I know combat arms units, that is a very soft spot in today's Mm -hmm. um, society, you know, that type of thing. But women in war have constantly proven that they are more than capable than being just nurses or cooks or drivers or anything like that. And I think Annie is a prime and wonderful example of that. Scout and Jasper also agree. Yes. And, and, you know, to like piggyback off that recognition, I think just her alone, you know, spoiler alert, she's buried at Arlington National Cemetery with full military honors. She is one of two women from the Civil War to have that honor. And I got the chance to visit her grave a few years ago, around 2016. And one, it was a hike. I'll tell you that. But it's really at on a absolute beautiful spot on the top of a hill, like probably like one of the top most points in Arlington. And her her gravestone is with her third husband, who we'll get into next week. Um, but it's a cross and all around her are headstones. And it was just kind of bone chilling because you don't really know if they like served with her or anything like that. But there's a letter that I'll read next week from a uh, George Hill from Cleveland, Ohio. And that alone talks about how the men felt to her because her story was so widely known. It wasn't just in her units. It was it, you know, word spread. They're like, oh, General Annie. We know Michigan Annie. Yeah, she's an angel in petticoats. Like, that is who we'll get into, like, we'll dive into, like, her military pension and everything next week. But, I mean, to see, like, her her gravestone in Arlington, I mean, I just sat there and just kind of, it was surreal. It was like meeting your hero. Oh, yeah. And, like, for me to be like, there's this girl from Wayne who probably had nothing she literally had nothing to lose, puts herself on the line every single day and is the most humble person about everything. And I just hope, I hope that I can get in touch with her family member because I would love to know more. Cause at the end she, you know, I mean, she was no nonsense at the end and she probably was like that, but it was probably from her experiences in the war because you know, you could have a friend one day and then not have that friend the next day. But I think this is a good stopping point. And we'll get into more of this next week. I think we're going to do a lot of these as two-part series um, because there's just so much to cover. And we'll try to cover it as quickly as we can. And we'll be posting on our Instagram a lot this week and our Facebook a lot this week. So drop us a like. Um, tell your friends to follow us. If you have any questions um, or comments, write us at our email, Facebook, Instagram. And of course, our email is always info.womenonwar at gmail.com. And also, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review um, or even too, like on Facebook, send us like a nice like comment or a little post. Um, it is always greatly appreciated. As we've said before, we're a little podcast. Um, we like our little podcast and we also just want people to especially with our new series with women on war um definitely want all of the feedback and just 
really want to get out there and educate a lot of people on these wonderful subjects. So next week, we'll be doing our two parts for the wonderful and most amazing and incredibly badass Angel in Petticoats, Amy Etheridge, uh, where cool. Jillian will continue talking. And then in the following week, we will be having our first guest. Yes. Box, our yes. wonderful, wonderful Rachel Box will be joining us for the Night Witches and continuing on from that. So, you know, stay tuned. We'll yes. be dancing once our, you know, closing song goes. If you want to dance with us, Jasper will be chomping on a bone. Scout might be dancing in the process. Okay. Bye, Bye, Bye.